The Boardroom International Surfboard Show presented by U.S. Blanks coming up here October 8th and 9th at the Del Mar Fairgrounds. Features the Icons of Foam Shaping competition honoring Timmy Patterson. We've got eight shapers going at it head-to-head tournament bracket format competition. In addition to the Icons of Foam Shape off the Boardroom Show, we'll feature an exhibit hall packed with state-of-the-art surfboards, wetsuits, fins, gear, and art from the industry's top brands. There will be a generational surf car exhibit, cars from the 50s through the 2020s, live music by the School of Rock, the Juvenile Seagulls, Puerto, the Bucket Ruckus, and the Four Stringers and Friends. Carver Skateboards will sponsor a ramp area, the Best in Show competition featuring Big Wave Guns, presented by Zio Baffa Organic Italian Wines. The California Gold Surf Auction will exhibit a small selection of the 63 lots available. On Saturday at noon, there will be a live discussion with Iconofoam Timmy Patterson. And at 1 o'clock, we'll have a discussion on the state of Big Wave Surfing with Jojo Roper and Peter Mel. The Vintage Surfboard Collector Club will be in attendance boardroomshow.com for tickets. And I need to tell you about Room to Roam, friends of mine, a boutique surf adventure travel outfit. And the good people at Room to Roam are giving away a trip to Nicaragua. And you can get not one, but two entries to this Room to Roam trip to Nicaragua by purchasing your Boardroom Show tickets. So go to boardroomshow.com, purchase your ticket, and guess what? Not one entry, but two entries for the Room to Roam adventure surf travel trip to Nicaragua. And if you've already purchased your tickets, don't stress, your two entries are already in. Go to boardroomshow.com, buy your tickets to the Boardroom Show, and you are entered not once, but twice. The California Gold Surf Auction, the catalog is published and ready for you to check out. We have 63 lots of curated, vetted, vintage, and historically significant surfboards. The bidding begins October 1st at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, and lots begin closing consecutively Saturday, October 15th at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Register now for the California Gold Surf Auction, auctions.thevintagesurfauctions.com. That's plural, auctions.thevintagesurfauctions.com. Register, bid, and win for the California Gold Surf Auction. Again, that's auctions.thevintagesurfauctions.com. Randy Rarick has worn many hats, Weber team rider, pro surfer, shaper, and board builder, professional surfing tour administrator, the Triple Crown of Surfing executive director. Rarick is a world traveler and the vintage collectible surfboard aficionado. Randy Rarick is the go-to guy for expert surfboard restoration. And that's just to name a few of the hats that Randy has worn. In this episode, we chat about his latest project, The Summer of 66, and we dig deep into the world of vintage collectible surfboards. On this episode of the Boardroom Podcast, Randy Rarick. Let us begin. I got you loud and clear. Welcome, Randy Rarick. Good morning. It's the Boardroom Podcast, and it's good to see you this morning. Well, it's pretty early for me, but uh, you're still looking as handsome as ever. (laughs) Do you drink coffee or tea in the morning? 
green tea. Oh, good man. Well, I like to start these things off with sort of a different question to kind of get the, the noggin generating. Um, what is the one, one album, the one music album, Randy, that, that people should listen to before they pass away? I think the very first Led Zeppelin album. I gotta tell you, I gotta tell you a funny story about that. When that came out, I um, actually saw Led Zeppelin play at the old uh, Civic Auditorium here in Honolulu, and I had, I was a dealer for Dewey Weber then. I had my own surf shop, and I was just getting into shaping, and I uh, thought that was the coolest album, and I put it on full blast one time, and actually shaped a board in the nude listening to Led Zeppelin. Is that your first and only nude surfboard? The only th- first, yeah, I think it was. After that, <laughs> it got per- it per- got pretty gritty. So you know, I never did it again. Well, that leads me into this next one. What's the one surfboard that you would suggest that every surfer should ride? You know, I think everybody needs to try some kind of a longboard. The problem with today's surfers, everybody's been conditioned on shortboards and they've never had an ability to, or they've had the ability, obviously, but they haven't had the gumption to want to go out and ride a longboard. And I think if you look back through the last hundred years of surfing history, everybody who started surfing eventually moved themselves up to a longboard and got probably the best rides of that part of their career and then went on from there. So you think about Duke Hanamoka riding that mile long ride out at uh, outside castles all the way to the beach at Waikiki. And then you think about the guys in the sixties, the Greg Knowles and those kind of guys riding the big giant boards at Waimea. And then uh, you move through to when shortboards really got popular and probably it was when Kelly Slater came along. He never embraced the longboard. And it's funny because ever since or be a separate entity rather than just part of surfing. Yeah. Um, well, that kind of leads us into this this next topic, which is your your design project called the Summer of '66. Can you tell me a little bit about your new project here, Summer of '66? What is it? Well, what that is is. Um, it's actually not as new as I'd like to think it is only because we started it pre COVID and well, it was during the right, actually the height of COVID and uh, it was almost been a two year project because of COVID. It really threw a wrench in the works. But what it was, I actually about two years ago, I did a project called the summer of 69, which was uh, just a passion project where I had boards from the transition air when we went from long to short in 69, right before low rails came in. And it was so popular, I thought, oh, this will be really fun to do another one. I thought, what should we do? And and we picked Nose Riders from 1966. And without giving away all the details of the, the actual video, in 1965, Tom Morey had the first professional event up in Ventura called the Tom Morey Invitational, where he gave away $1,500 to 24 of the best surfers on the West Coast. Well, that was a some, uh, objective event that, it was a time nose right of it. It was how much time you spent on the nose. So it was really interesting. Everybody made a specific design nose rider for this tournament in 65, and it just blew up in 66. 
And that's what really made everybody in, in California particularly want to ride a nose rider. So we took 10 of these nose riders from 10 different manufacturers and I either restored them or repaired them. And we took them out on a really fun day at Sunset Point. And uh, we had 10 different riders film riding these 10 1966 model um, nose riders. And the end result was this one hour show that we just put together. And we just released it uh, actually last week, Tuesday. It was just released on the Surf Network. And uh, it was pretty interesting because I started off first, it was going to be just women. I was going to have Cassia Miador and Honolulu Bloomfield were going to be the two riders, test pilots. And then unfortunately, uh, Honolulu twisted her ankle the day before we were going to film. And uh, we added the rest of the uh, O'Neill women's team, three other girls. And then we thought, well, we need some guys to throw in there. So we ended up having 10 different riders. And so they rode 10 boards that are probably some of the best well-known. And at the same time, a couple of obscure ones. We had a David Nueva nose riding model. We had a, a, a Con Ugly. We had a Yater Spoon. We had a Harvard Cheater. We had a Greek Eliminator. And we had altogether five nose riders with a step deck and five nose riders with either a planing nose or, or concave nose. Put all that together, filmed it on a beautiful little two, three foot day at Sunset Point. And the end result was um, 55 years later, how relevant boards from that era, 1966, are still uh, fun to ride today. And was there a, like a consensus did all the surfers ride all the boards or was there? Yeah, one everybody surfer? rode, everybody switched off. And uh, the, the general consensus was that the Bing David Nueva nose riding model was the, the, the most popular simply because it was the easiest to ride and everybody could ride it. On the other hand, I think the, the Con Ugly was probably uh, another favorite. And one that was really interesting was the Maury Pope snub. And this was the first turned down nose model that Tom Morey shaped himself. And it was really fascinating to see this 20 inch wide nose and 24 and a half inch wide board and seeing these gals that were like a hundred pounds going out and riding the, the tip on this. And, uh, you know, without, like I said, if you get a chance, you know, go to the, the surfnetwork.com and, and go to summer 66 and you can watch it for free. It doesn't cost anything. You can sign up and you got to fill out your, your name and address and all that sort of thing, but you can watch it for free for a week. And, uh, it's pretty, we, we've, we've had it out for a week now and over a couple thousand people have watched it. So it's been, it's been really a hit. So I'm pretty stoked. Okay. So this, the summer of 66, it's on Ira Opper's The Surf Network. You can watch it for free, people. So let me ask you this. You mentioned um, the Moray snub. And immediately I thought of the Holmesy Sidewinder because you mentioned that it had a down rail in the nose. Right. Um, what are your thoughts on this design concept? I've ridden the Holmesy Sidewinder. In fact, I used to ride it for a couple of years. It's the only board I rode a long time ago. And I loved that board. And I thought it was one of the greatest nose riding boards I've ever had, which, which is weird because you'd think I would go to you, that the rider would go too fast because of the down rail on the nose. Well, you know, it's, there's a classic example of why I did the summer 66 project was all these different manufacturers designed a specific board for nose riding. And, the Holmesy Sidewinder had the real distinct thing was a scooped out tail and on the back rails, uh, uh, area to channel the, the water over the tail to hold the tail down so you could stay on the nose. And really those boards didn't work for 
you know, they were terrible boards in my opinion, but they nose rode really good because they went so darn slow. The whole idea there was to slow the board down to wave speed so you could get up on the tip. And so that's the whole neat thing about all these designs. And, you know, like I said, I mentioned the Con Ugly. We had a Ramsey J Elevator. We What's had, that board? That board threw me for a loop when I saw that one. What's that it, all about? That that was Ramsey J is a pretty obscure, really regionalized label from Newport Beach. And it was uh, their concept of a, a nose rider. And it had a, a great logo and a great name. And a lot of people never heard of it. But uh, it was actually... A really fun board that was the shortest board in our whole collection and uh actually the ladies really liked that one because it was easy to turn and ride so that's that was the whole point of this whole summer of 66 was the specific boards and then the irony is all these manufacturers in 1966 were making these nose rider specific boards the world contest came along in san diego and nat young blew them all away and it just within it one realm the whole thing changed after that so by 67 most of those boards are obsolete yeah, it's fascinating to me, the, the concept of, I, I, I envision all of these builders from being the whole South Bay of Los Angeles, all that building community and everywhere around the world. At one point in 67, 68, they all went, uh-oh. And I'd love for there to be some sort of, somebody to do something on the moment the light switched on or off, as the case may be in, in many you know, uh, situations, where these guys like Noel and all these guys went, oh, shit. You know, like, I think that's kind of a fascinating moment. And I know it happened at different points during that era, during that six months period. Yeah, well, it was, you know, the, the guys were just booming. I mean, uh, it was a, kind of the golden age of surfing. Everybody was buying surfboards and mid-60s were, were really happening. And what happened was all those big manufacturers realized, oh, my gosh, you know, things are going to change really quick here. And they were sitting on hundreds and hundreds, even thousands of big longboards. And they went to John Severson, who had Surfer Magazine then, which was kind of the Bible of the time. And that's how you got your advertising out there. And they said, don't push the shortboard thing yet. we got to get rid of all this stock. And they shipped literally thousands of boards, particularly to the East Coast, to get rid of these things before shortboards came in. And they held back as long as they could. And finally, the dam broke. And then it was the end of the story from a lot of those major manufacturers. So within, as you mentioned, within six months, Things went from 10-foot longboards to 7-foot shortboards, basically. Yeah. Now, the summer of 66, this, this cool design project film that you put out, is it a competition? Is there a format? Or is it basically like just kind of like a, an expression session? Um, what we did was I actually went into the shaping room with the, the ladies and explained to them. And here we had uh, Tessa Timmons, um, uh, Brittany... Penarosa and uh, Journey Regobruge, and they had no clue about the designs. And I mean, literally, and Honolulu as well. And I went in there and explained the difference between, like I said, a step deck and a concave and all the kick in the tail and what made these boards such good nose riders. And we did each piece in the shaping room, and then we would take the board out and go surf it. And so everybody rode these boards and they were like amazed. They were like, wow, I can't, I can't believe what makes this work and, and what have you. So it was very interesting in that um, if you watch, when you watch the video, I explained each board and, and the, the differences between them and the characteristics that really make it work. So it wasn't a competition. It was just a free form surfing session. And when you, and it's a beautiful surfing. And we had Larry Haynes doing our water photography and, 
Uh, Mike Latronic was doing our land photography and we had, a, a, uh, you know, from a drone up above and, and it was pretty neat. So if you get a chance, like I said, the listeners out there, go to summer 66, it's on the surfnetwork.com and you'll, you'll get a real education. My whole, my goal as a, as a surfboard shaper and a restorer was to educate the viewer as to what these boards were all about, to give them an idea, because in my opinion, our design we've had over the last hundred years. And if you understand those designs, you understand the history of surfing. That's what's so important about um, collecting boards and, and knowing the history via the designs. And the surfboards are pieces of art that are all handmade, especially back in those days. That was long before computers and, and uh, you know, machines that are, that are using today. But that way you can see what the progress of surfing was done through the equipment that we rode. Yeah, and can you repeat that one more time, Randy? Because you kind of broke up because you really were making an important point about your opinion about design and its and its relevance to history. Well, the history of surfing is laid out in the designs that we ride. So if you understand surfboard designs and the different shapes and the different airs we went through, then you'll understand the history of surfing. That's why it's so important for people to be aware of all these boards, these classical boards, um, and the different airs that they represent. And you can see the progress of surfing literally in the last 100, 100 some odd years that surfboards have been available. Uh, I mean, the ancient Hawaiians rode wood boards. We had the, the first manufacturers of, of wood hollow boards when Tom Blake came along in the thirties. And then we went into uh, pre-World War II. And then during, after World War II, we came out with fiberglass and balsa boards. And then the designs got good enough guys to begin to ride big waves. And so the big wave guns that came along in the sixties dictated what was happening as far as big wave riding. And then the transition to the shortboard, as we were talking about earlier from in the late sixties went from 10 foot have 50 pound longboards to these mine machines of 1969. And then low rails came in in late 69, early 70, which set the phase for guys like Jerry Lopez to be able to ride pipeline and come up with his you know, pipeline pintails. And then you see that the, as the designs progressed into the shortboard era, we had the, the twin fins that Mark Richards rode, uh, Dan K. Aloha single fins, then Simon Anderson in the 80s with the thruster. So the whole progress in the history of our sport is laid out with the boards that we rode. So if you understand the boards, you understand the history of surfing. Well, um, look, you've done the summer of 69. You've done the summer of 66. I'm anticipating there must be another summer coming here in your in your media future. And I'm wondering, God, is it going to be something like the V-bottom, which would just be crazy and maybe well, undoable? Well, you know, we, we lost Tom Mori a little bit last year. And uh, I was so impressed with Tom Mori. And he was so far ahead of his time. And he was really a genius in design. I'm actually working on a project about Maury Pope's right now. Oh, cool. And Carl Pope was his, his partner. And <clears throat> they were up in Ventura. They they were doing the down rail boards before anybody else. And they had the John Peck Penetrator. They had the Bob Cooper Blue Machine. Then McTavish came along and joined them and created the McTavish Tracker. And I think right now that Maury Pope's are the unsung hero boards because 
they were out of the mainstream. They weren't down in, in the Dana Point Mafia. They weren't in the South Bay. They were coming from Ventura, and yet they were riding Rincon, and they were doing stuff on boards that nobody else was doing. They developed the down rails up front, the rocker in the tail, when everybody else was making these straight planks. So I'm working, I think my next project is going to be on the kind of the history of Maury Pope and how they were uh, ahead of their time. That's, that's really interesting to me. I've, I've often, um, I've been told by guys like Jerry Lopez and, and I, and frankly by you, I want to say that Henson was the guy that put the down rail on the board. And I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you're suggesting that they put the down rail up further where Henson had it back in the tail. Well, it was completely two different things. So we're talking long boards from the 60s where they had the down rail up front and ideally it was to make nose riding better. Henson is credited with creating the down rail or the, what we called back then the breakaway rail. And he came out with it in late 60s and 69. And Jerry, for instance, was using a, a typical board with a bold nose at that stage. He and if you watch the early shots of Jerry, he'd try to pull up in the barrel and his nose, he would always fall out of the wave because it wouldn't hold in the wave. Well, he started using a down rail that he got from Henson, and that rail held into the hollowness of the wave. So Henson, for sure, is the guy credited with the, the, the current, to this day, here we are 40 years later, the down rail that made it possible to ride hollow waves. So the Maury Pope thing was more of a nose riding issue on a longboard. And you know, they still had clunky rails and everything for uh, North Shore type of ways. But for sure, Henson is the one that you're going to credit for the modern down rail without a doubt. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about auctions because um, I've got one coming up here in about five weeks, the California gold surf auction. It's October 1st through the 15th. Um, and people, and I know you get these emails too, and I get these emails all the time. Scott, what is, you know, why is, how much is my board worth basically, which makes me backpedal and go, whoa, whoa, whoa. First of all, send me a picture. I hate right. getting emails without a picture. Um, but really what they're asking is what makes a board valuable, right? And this is a question that I know you get all the time too. And I'd like you to, I, I've been told um, by some people that, a good way, a foundational way to look at it is the three P's, right? Pedigree, is it pristine, and what's the provenance? And I'd like you to talk a little bit, if you could, about the first P, which is pedigree, you know, like a lineage of ancestry, a lineage of, of who's involved. And I'll give you an example. Mark Richards, mentored by Dick Brewer and others. Dick Brewer mentored along the way by, uh, well, he has mentored, I should say. Uh, Reno and Jerry Lopez and Al Chapman and Sam Hawk and Gary Linden and Pat Ryan. Frankly, it's too long to list the people that Brewer's influence. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm actually in, in that list. I mean, I worked with Brewer at the old Surfline shop in Honolulu when he was uh, making the bings. And I used to foil all the, the high-performance fins that went on all the pipeliners. So you're yeah. right. Brewer's influenced everything and everybody. And uh, basically, well, what's, what's interesting is if we go the opposite direction to that, you know, who mentored Brewer, right? And I know you can speak to this, but I'm going to suggest to you, I think Diff and Durfer was involved. And then who mentored Diff? Well, I think Pat Curran might have mentored Diff. And who mentored, who mentored Curran? And I understand that Hobie Alter and Walter Hoffman were influencing Pat Curran. So it, the pedigree is is really important. Yeah, that's, um, as you said, if you can trace back where that board came from, who is it linked to, who is the shaper, who is the manufacturer, um, all that adds value to it. It's kind of like 
if you had a Shelby Cobra, it's going to be worth a heck of a lot more than a, just a, a Mustang. So the idea of who made, who designed it, who was behind the manufacturer of it is all going to add value to that. So the, the, if you can, you can have that. And a lot of times that's the problem with these old boards is, you know, who did make it, who was a manufacturer. You mentioned Brewer, for instance, Brewer had a, a ton of guys that he apprenticed under. And so there's been a lot of Dick Brewer surfboards made that Dick Brewer didn't have anything to do with. Um, yeah. You mentioned all those shapers that, that, you know, mentored that he mentored and, and they've become good shapers in their own right. But back then it didn't make a difference. So, it's really important to know the history behind your board. And the more history you have, the more of the value of the board is going to be. And it's kind of like cars. If you look at a 57 Chevy, it's really desirable. But who wants a 53 Chevy? It's the same thing. It's kind of like a, a stock Hobie with a three-quarter inch Redwood Stringer that they made thousands of is not going to be anywhere near worth what a Hobie Phil Edwards model is worth that Phil Edwards happened to shape out of the same exact factory made by the same guys. But at that particular Phil Edwards model is going to be worth 10 times as much as a stock Hobie, just like the 57 Chevy is going to be worth more than a 53 Chevy. Yeah. And, and speaking of years, I mean, I would argue, and I think the market would tell us that for instance, a 94 Phil Edwards Hobie that Phil shaped, is worth more than a stock Hobie from 64. They're just in the showroom. It's clear. Exactly. So going back once again, if you can prove and you can document who made the board and who that person was. And, uh, you know, there's, there's other model boards. Model boards always tend to be worth more money than just a stock label board. So because it was specifically designed by a good surfer, or for a specific purpose. Like, like the big my, David Nueva nose rider is the great example of that. Exactly. So let's just say my, um, or 66 has 10 different quote model boards that were specifically designed for nose riding. It's the same thing with a Dick Brewer Hobie gun. They made less than a hundred of those. So those boards, well, well, I'll give you a good example of guns. You know, guns are, are a limited variety of surfboards they only made so many for riding so many big ways especially back if you go back to the 60s there's like three different model boards or guns that are sort of the holy grail you have the pat curran designed santa barbara surf shop made by yader guns and there's 11 of them made that's it only 11 of them and i've seen eight of the 11 and those boards will sell in excess of thirty thousand dollars because they're so rare the second probably highest one is the uh, Mike Hinson, Gordon and Smith Redfin guns, and they made 12 of those. Same thing. So really rare. Only a few exist. They're going to be worth a ton of money. The next one probably in line is the Hobie Dick Brewer model. They made, as far as I can tell, and I've seen about 50 of them, they made 98 of those. And so those are super rare as well. So maybe not quite as rare as a Hinson or, or a current gun simply because of the numbers. So there, that's another thing is how many of them were made? How rare are they? So those three guns from the sixties are the kind of Ferraris of the, the collectible world from that generation. Yeah. And you speak of scarcity, right? Which I think is a really interesting factor when we value surfboards. Um, and one of the problems that I have in the, you know, nowadays is that, Guys will go, hey, I got this really killer board. 
and I'll take a, a look at it. And it is a killer board, but they've plastered it all over the internet. And I'm like, man, you know, like it just loses a little bit of its, of its psychological power. You know, if you can say, Hey, no one's ever seen this board. I just pulled it out of this little old lady's rafter in Riverside. You know, people are like, Whoa, you know, and I wish people would have a better understanding of how important scarcity is. Well, it's once again, using the car analogy, if you, you know, have a cool car, but you put it on, uh, you know, bring a trailer or, uh, you know, Craigslist or, you know, wherever it's going to be. And everybody and the brother's seen it. The uniqueness is, disappears. It's like a Barrett Jackson auto auction. They say, you know, from the collection of so-and-so, n- nobody's ever seen this car before. And people are salivating over because it's the first time ever. And they're like, whoa, check this thing out. It is so rare. Nobody's seen it. It's come out of the woodwork. And here it is, this cool board. So you're right. If you're going to try to shop it all around and, and, you know, it diminishes the value when everybody's seen it because the uniqueness of it is gone. Yeah. <clears throat> the second P in these three P's, and, and this is, again, sort of my foundational way that I start to look at boards when people send me an email, is is it pristine? You know, what condition is the board in? We generally use a scale of one to 10, 10 being mint off the showroom floor, no scratches. There's eight to nine and a half, which is great, excellent to near mint condition. Some minor scratches, perhaps a, a deck dent here or there. Then there's like six to seven, and we generally, the auction house steers clear of anything in that range. But there are exceptions. There are occasions when a six or seven, as far as the, the pristine quality of the board, um, still the board might find its way into the auction. What are your thoughts on, on, on pristine, if you have any, or maybe I've just already covered it all? Well, you, you pretty well did. I mean, that was a good sort of breakdown of the different categories. Um, what's I've seen happen, and in, in, once again, I hate to keep coming back to the car analogy, the change in attitude 10, 15 years ago, guys wanted what we call preservation class. This is a, in the case of a car, a car that's still got the original paint, the original um, engine in it, but is in really good preserved condition. And that's preservation class. And that's, that's the most desirable. And it's the same thing in surfboards. If you can find a board that's original and it hasn't been ridden to death, you're going to go, whoa, this thing is a really good original shape. It hasn't been altered. It hasn't been restored. It hasn't been touched. That's going to be worth a lot of money. But in surfboards, that's really hard to find because surfboards are made to be ridden and they were made out of foam and fiberglass or earlier wood, perhaps. But And if they've been ridden a lot, they're going to be beat up and they're going to be trashed and they're going to be in bad condition. And you're not going to want that. And that's happened, once again, using the car analogy, in the collector car world, all these cars that you see going across the auction block, whether it be Mecham or Barrett Jackson or, or Steel or any of these car, uh, they've all been fixed. They've all been repainted. They've all been brought up to just like new condition, but they've all been worked on. And those cars are actually outselling original cars that are in clean original condition. And the same or things happen as uh, a restoration specialist that I, you know, have been involved with for a long time. In the last f- four or five years, I've seen this huge shift in people wanting boards that are fully restored. They're shiny. The dings are fixed. They're great. They're, where 10 years ago, guys would say, leave the wax on it. 
you know, don't touch <laughs> it. And, you know, that's, that's how they want it. Well, now it's just the opposite. Nine times out of 10, and I have to say this is probably because a lot of to do with, with the California gold auction, that you've been presenting boards that are in really good original condition or really good fully restored condition, and people have gravitated towards the restored boards because they're done. They can hang them on the wall. If they want to take them out surfing, they're ready to go. They don't have to touch them. They don't have to do anything to them. They're, they're showroom quality, and they look great. Most collectors are buying boards to look at. They're not going to really ride them. There are a handful of guys that will take them out and ride them, which is really cool that, that you do. And just a sidebar on that, as, as I restore boards all the time for people, I say to them, I want to be able to take this board out and ride it when I'm done with it. And nine times out of 10, they say, oh, my gosh, go for it. And living right at Sunset Beach, I have the ability to be able to take it out and, and test it out after I've uh, done a restoration. on it. So it's a, it's a great way to see how these boards actually rode. So I'm, it's a little perk that I get for being a restoration specialist. That's cool. That's really cool. Um, well, speak about the concept of, because I'm, and tell me about how it works in the car industry. Cause I actually do think the car auctions and car collectibles are, is a good analogy. Um, is it known when you go to like Barrett Jackson, if a car has been restored to its original condition or if it's just been restored, like, is there a, is Oh there yeah. A- they, no, they, 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 in fact, there's things that they call like the resto mods. That's where they take a car and they'll make modern improvements on it. And they'll put like you know, new brakes on it or, or uh, transmissions or whatever. So resto mods are, it's resto mean restored, but in a modern category. And those are really popular because most of those are drivers. Those are ones guys will take them and they'll actually drive them. They look classic and old, but they've got modern drivetrains and this and that. So they divulge, really well what's been done so the same thing with myself you know i'll get a board most of the boards i get um are brown they're sunburned they're dinged up they're waterlogged whatever's uh you know just well well used and i'll take them apart rebuild them do a full restoration and then say restored to like new conditions so my goal is to try to bring them back and make as look as possible as i can to the factory conditions they were when they're made in the sixties. And a lot of times, quite honestly, they come out better because yeah. I do a better job than they were made in the factory. You wouldn't believe how crappy some of the glass jobs were, the gloss jobs on some of these old boards. And they really weren't built very well because they were just pumping them out yeah. and I'll actually redo them and make them better than they were when they were new. So in surfboards, you divulge, you know, full restoration, and a lot of times uh, I'll put a letter of authenticity, explain what the board was. And, and you know, we're not hiding anything. We're trying to show people we've actually made this board as good as we possibly can to factory specs of what it looked like if you were in the, walk into the old, you know, Bing showroom and buy that off the rack. That David knew even knows right here is, is back to his. And sometimes you have to use color work on them to um, cover up some dings or what have you. And you have to take some uh, liberties to make them look better. But yeah that's divulged yeah and what about bringing it like the board back to its original condition versus just restored what are your thoughts on that well um i have you you're talking the three p's here i have what i call the three r's it's repair refurbish restore repair obviously is when you fix the dings you waterproof it and you leave it okay and you can see some of the damage refurbish is where you clean it up you may put some color on to hide some dings 
you may put uh, have to replace the fan, you refurbish whatever it takes to get it back to so it's in rideable and clean condition. And my definition of a restore is a little different than a lot of guys. A lot of guys say when you restoration in my case what i'm talking about is doing a full you take the fiberglass off you get the foam blank prepping the foam is the most important thing in a restoration where you get it back to the foam you got to cut out a wedge in the rail or you got to fill a deck that's been sunken or whatever it is prepping the blank you're down to back to solid foam you want to keep the integrity of the shape. You don't want to change the shape at all. You want to keep it exactly like the original shape or shaped it. You're just cleaning it up. Then you give it to the glasser, and the glasser does old school glass work. Like in a case of a 60s, you might do two layers of 10 ounce with um, orthothalic resin. Um, if it's a 70s board, you're going to do a single layer of six ounce on it. If it's a twin fin, you're going to make it even lighter. So depending on which air the board comes from, you're trying to get it back to as clean and possible as you can. And that's what I consider a full restoration. We've, we've talked a bit about this already, but provenance, right? Like when we talked about pedigree, we sort of melded into the concept of provenance. And, and I think a strict definition of provenance, at least according to my research, and I'll, and I'll just read what I, I found here, is that it refers to the record or records of previous ownership of the board. And that serves as proof of its authenticity. And um, obviously that kind of does uh, meld with the idea of pedigree. For sure. Um, I'll give you a good example. When I was doing my Hawaiian Island vintage surf auction back in the early 2000s, we were talking about Hobie earlier where Hobie cranked out thousands of boards and the model boards came along and the Corky Carroll model came along. Well, Corky sold a ton of Corky Carroll models and he was probably the first pro surfer to actually get a good uh, royalty checks out of uh, his model boards. But because of that, there's a proliferation of Corky Carroll models out there. There's a ton of them. And so subsequently they're not that rare. Well, I came across a board that Corky Carroll rode in the 1968 World Contest in Puerto Rico and have photos of Corky riding the board. And because it was Corky's personal board they rode in the World Championship, the value of that board was probably three times more than the exact, actually better condition Corky Carroll model that would have been a stock Corky Carroll model. So the, the provenance is really important, as you said, whether it be pictures, whether it be letters, whether it be a uh, endorsement from the manufacturer or the writer who made it, anything like that, that you can verify the authenticity of that board is going to really add value to it. So provenance is everything. If you have uh, Jerry Lopez's board, there's a good example uh, that he used in the sequence in Big Wednesday, that's going to be worth three times more than the exact same model Jerry Lopez board that's still going to be worth a lot of money because Jerry made it and shaped it. But the fact that you've got documentation of him writing it in the movie Big Wednesday, it's going to be worth probably two to three times more than, than just a normal Jerry Lopez model. So provenance is everything. So if you have, like you said, whether it's a shaper, a Pat Curran board, and you've got pictures of Pat Curran or somebody riding that board... Um, Greg Knoll, another example, Greg made a lot of boards, but the Greg Knoll guns, the Greg Knoll cap models, the, the ones that are 
uniquely different are the ones that really add value to what the board's worth. You know, the, the one the example that I like to use, and this is a great case where provenance will override pristine, as you mentioned with the Corky model, is, is the George Greeno Velo. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a V, like everyone knows George's workmanship was, he was more about getting in the water than putting it on the showroom floor. So it was a little rough around the edges. But here we have a board, you mentioned Nat Young winning the world title in 66, I believe it was. Here we have a board that influenced that board. You know, we the Velo, which is basically sort of the, I mean, I'll say it was the catalyst for the shortboard revolution. Maybe I'm wrong. But uh, here we have a board that was really, it's really rough. It's a knee board for God's sakes. And it's a board that is going to be worth a heck of a lot of money, even though, you know, if you bring it home to the wife, she's going to go, what's that thing? Yeah, no, I mean, guys that made significant uh, design attributes and, and George is a classic example. I knew George really well when George went to Australia. I went to Australia back in, we're talking way back now. I mean, it's like 1968. And I stayed with George and, and Bob McTavish in Australia. And, you know, his boards worked great in certain waves and they influenced McTavish and then Nat Young, of course. And you're right. I think you can attribute the shortboard catalyst that Bob McTavish took and really launched into it. So that's going to be really important. And as you said, it, you know, you don't see that many kneeboards to begin with, let alone flexible ones like George made. And, we did have one in my auction in the early 60s or early uh, 2000s, I mean, and it was really a crappy board. I mean, it was ugly. It was ma- it was the Was that the Chris, of- Chris Brock one? Yeah, the Chris Brock one. Yeah. And that board sold for $20,000. And, yeah. you know, we're talking 15, 20 years ago now. So yeah. that board to today would probably be worth at least $30,000 if, you know, if it came back on the market again. So... On that note, you know, I'm seeing now, I did my auction back in the 2000s, 20 years ago when I did the Hawaiian Islands Vintage of Surf auction. And a couple of the boards that we sold in the early auctions have come back onto the market again, which makes them even more valuable because one, they were documented back then and then 20 years have passed and they've they've just become that much more vintage. Yeah, luckily uh, our auction, California Gold Surf Auction, has been... um, you know, I've been able to reap some of the rewards. Our, our, the market has been able to re- reap some of the rewards of your past auctions. And I, I actually love it. I know you have sort of a, a, a uh, you know, a policy, if you will, that you don't want to resell the board in the auction. But I, I'm, I'm a big fan when somebody goes, yeah, I bought this at Randy's auction in 03. And I say to myself, okay, perfect. Let's take a peek here because I know it's going to add some value. Um, the last thing um, I want to talk about is, is and this is gonna this is obviously my opinion which is might not be worth much but um it's your it's your blog you can say what you want (laughs) (laughs) that's been my downfall uh this if i was to ask you when we think about performance surfboards and we've got right now today some of the most high, the most high performance surfboards in the world, whatever they might be, that's another argument, but we know they're out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and we think about what was the very first one. So we have the Omega out here today and the very first, and I'm talking about performance surfboards where they went, where the surfers, okay. Yeah. They were going straight for a long time and they were just, you know, catching the wave and more or less they couldn't do too much, but at some point they decided to start, maneuvering on the wave face 
Um, and I'm of the opinion that it's that it could be, and maybe you can change my mind here, that it could and should be the hot curl. This was the board where they went, okay, we're, we're changing the shape so that we can ride in the hot curl. Um, what are your thoughts on the alpha? What is the alpha, the very first performance surfboard? Well, it's, it's tough because you, you have to actually, in my opinion, you have to divide it into eras. Because each era changed. So really but there was go, one era. There was the first era. What is the first well, era? Well, I mean, you could say it was the Hawaiian guy who took the tree and carved it into a rideable <laughs> surfboard. I guess we get down to defining what I mean by performance is right. So that, that's what I'm saying. So you, you almost have to, do, do, you know, you're, you're a young modern guy. So, you know, your idea is going to be different than, say, an 80 year old guy who looks back and says, hey, the first Joe Quigg was the first modern, you know, the Darlin board that yeah. Quig made at Malibu changed yeah. everything. But, you know, like you're going back earlier in that with the hot curl. And I agree with you when they took the wide tail boards and, and uh, John Kelly pulled the tail in and then George Downing and Wally Froyce had adapted that to ride Makaha. You know, you could say that was the beginning of performance surfing. So can you nail that era down a little bit for me? I'm of the uh, understanding that that John Kelly and Wally and uh, Fran Heath, all three of them at the same time surfing together, decided to cut down their wide tailed boards into these hot curls. That's exactly what happened because they had these wide tail boards that worked great in you know two foot Waikiki, but as soon as it got steep, they had what they call slide ass. The tail would drop out, and they all were hanging together and surfing together, and they and to some extent, John Kelly sort of attributed to taking a, a axe to it and, you know, pulling the tail in and make it narrower so it wouldn't slide out anymore. And then adding the V to it so it would hold into the wave. And so exactly who did it, who put, who added the V, who actually pulled it in. You know, it... The guys were working together with it. And I think to some extent <clears throat> that was the beginning of the, of the high performance board for its air. But then once again, like I said, you get into the balsa boards and they got lighter and they got more performance oriented. And if you want to be talk about today, really the guy you're going <clears> to, <throat> excuse me, you're going to credit it is uh, Simon Anderson because in 1981, he added a third fin, created the thruster. And here it is 50 years later and we're still using that design. So really for today's performance surfing, I would have to credit Simon as the, as the changing of that because you think before that it was Jerry Lopez at Pipeline and, and Sean Thompson on single fins and, you know, great surfing, but really what led to where we're at today was, was the addition of a third fin. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you brought up Sean Thompson. The, the loose theme of my auction coming up here in about five or six weeks is free ride <clears throat> and the free ride era. And frankly, uh, it's been difficult to get boards to match the theme, so to speak. Um, but it's an era, it's a movie, first of all, that just touches my heart because I'm, it's just right in my wheelhouse. I was 12 years old when that movie came out. And I mean, it just engulfed me and, and I was forever hooked. And, um, but we do have some cool boards. We got a couple of Sean boards, but one of them is a, what we call the modern classic. And maybe you can speak to that sort of level of surfboard. It's a Spider Murphy that was made in probably 2012 for Sean. Sean went over there and Spider and him got together. They made the board. Sean rode the board at J Bay. But that, you know, 
there are some of those boards out there. I know you've restored them, but they're just not in the market right now. Can you speak to me about the, the modern classic? Well, um, I'm going to cover two things here, that air and the modern classic. The modern classic is guys trying to come up with something that either is rideable or is going to be hung on the wall, perhaps, that represents a recreation of that air. So it's by in that case that like you're talking about Sean's, you know, Spider Murphy is the guy who made the original ones and Spider made the, the newer recreation one. And so some people think, oh, it's just a copy. Well, it's not really the word recreation is exactly what it is. It's recreating what that board represented from that air. So it's like a recreation of a Porsche. You can buy a fiberglass recreation Porsche. It looks exactly like the original one. It's not the original board, obviously, or original car, obviously, but it is a recreation of that. So I think there's a, a market for that. I think there's a place for that, that people uh, appreciate that. Obviously, if you can find an original one, it's going to be worth more money. But you're talking the free ride air. That's when we started the Pro Tour. Fred Hemmings and myself, you know, we inaugurated the old IPS, which went to the ASB, which is now the WSL, in 1976. And that was a groundbreaking time. And free ride documents that time. I mean, you had the Huey guys beating up the Australians here on the North Shore. You had performance levels going through the roof compared to what was before it. Because before it was BK, it was Jerry Lopez, it was Jeff Hackman surfing very well. But those guys came along and I was the tour director. So I was with them every every contest. And they're saying, we're not trying to you know, show up the Hawaiians. We're just trying to show them what we can do in Hawaiian surf. And that documents that. And obviously the, the film depicts it very well. It was a changing of the guard. It was a change in the air. And it was applying uh, the, the ideas of professional surfing in its infancy into what was there before it. So whether it be a rabbit Bartholomew board or whether it be a Sean Thompson board that Spider Murphy made for him, uh, his famous board at Pipeline had over rockered and it was made actually originally for Sunset. It worked terrible at Sunset, but it worked great backside of Pipeline. You mean and the then you had, you know, guys like Ian Cairns who were, it was power surfing. And then there still was, and then the new generation of uh, Hawaiians that were coming along, like Larry Bertelman, Mark Liddell and Buttons, and those guys were emerging at the same time. So it was a great ch- you know, part of surfing and, and that free ride air, I think. And like you said, it's hard to find those boards because they got ridden to death. Yeah. They got ridden into the ground. You should guys come to me and they'll bring me a board that is sunken on the deck and the fins broken off. And it's, you know, just a piece of junk. And I go, <laughs> boy, this one's going to be a challenge to bring it back to life. So, yeah. um, you know, all these different airs are what make, you know, collecting surfing, and surfboards so interesting as I, we started off this conversation, it's the history of our sport laid out in the equipment that we have. And I think that's what makes it so fascinating. That's why, you know, Scott, I got to hand it to you for carrying on the tradition of these auctions. When I stopped doing mine in 2011, when, you know, it was 10 years ago was the last time we did an auction here in Hawaii and you picked up the mantle and run well with it. And I think you're, you're actually doing a service to people and people you know, say, ah, Scott's just, you know, a businessman trying to make money off of this. And I said, on the contrary, Scott's a historian who's bringing to the sport our history so you can see it. And if you just happen to want to own part of it, there you go. 
Well, let me ask you this. Do, um, I get this question too, which is, um, you know, Scott, is this a wise investment? Is the collectible surfboard market a wise investment? What's your thoughts on that? Um, I wouldn't consider collectability as an investment. I think you should do it as a passion. You should collect because you like it, you appreciate it, you want to own a part of history. That's why you should do it. If it becomes valuable, good for you, you know. But you should see in, in my the back of my house, I have 50 boards sitting here. And probably two-thirds of them are never going to be worth the money that, that I paid for them. And, and I didn't pay very much because they're yeah. not going to be worth much. But they are a passion to me because of what they represent, different errors and what have you. I talked earlier about Maury Popes. I've got 15 Maury Popes and probably even restored. I'm not going to make much money on them because people are going to go, you know, what's this Maury Pope? What does it mean? They don't understand it. But to me, it means a lot. I just um, got through restoring a board that I had ridden back in 1972. And I went, oh, my gosh, I rode this board and I totally restored it back to like new condition. I probably could sell a board for maybe 500 bucks. I've got yeah. probably $1,500 worth of work into it. But to me, it means something. So for those that are investing in surfboards uh, as an investment, you know, you got to understand certain boards. Like if you have a cat model, a Mickey Dora cat model is going to be a good investment because there's a big desire and demand for those. It's all about supply and demand. Yeah. But really, I think if you're collecting, you're collecting because it's something that you like, you want to hang on the wall. You want to look at that board and go, wow, so-and-so rode that at, you know, pipeline or wow, that's a big wave gun that was, you know, somebody rode a 25 foot wave at Waimea or wow, there's a nose rider that Lance Carson rode at, at Malibu. I mean, that's the kind of collecting you should be into because it means something and it's part of history, not so much as an investment. Yeah. And, and as we spoke here this morning, you mentioned some boards and I'll just tell you that we've got some of these boards in our auction. Um, we've got a board from Big Wednesday. We've got a Mike Perry shaped bear model that PT rode that's got tons of provenance, some of which is, is from you actually. Um, we've got um, two Pat Currents. We've got a modern classic that was built in 94, which is just incredible. And this is a great example of a modern classic that's going to be maybe the most valuable board in the auction, perhaps because of the scarcity of the originals. There was only, as you mentioned, eight or 11 of those made. Correct. We've got, well, that, yeah, go ahead. No, no, it's, you know, I love the fact that you come up with boards that you know, people want, what we talked earlier, people haven't seen or they haven't been out in the, in the public. Um, you've got one that we mentioned they're recycled from my previous auction, but I couldn't believe that the owner of this board was selling it and, and was ready to let it go. And he paid, I think, 17,500 20 years ago, actually more than 20 years ago. And, you know, a Pat Kern that was made and owned by Steve McQueen. I mean, yeah. talk about provenance. That board sold for that much back then. In my opinion, that board is worth twice that much today. You know, anything Steve McQueen, you, you, you know, I, I saw one of his watches that he wore, you know, went for $300,000 just for a watch that he wore. Well, here's a surfboard that Steve McQueen owned. I went, man, I blew my mind that this guy was ready to let it go. So, you know, good on you that you're, you know, pulling back a board that to me, 
almost is worth more than the gun simply because it was you know, owned by Steve McQueen. But anyway, carry on. Yeah, we'll no, I, I'm excited about it. That's going to be a good one. Some other ones that you mentioned, like we've got three Lopez's. We've got um, two modern classic Lopez's pipeliners that he did. One's a big nine foot gun. One's a beautiful normal size seven, eight. In fact, the gun's not really a pipeliner, right? It's just a, a big wave board. But we also have one that he made in 76. We've got some BKs, as you mentioned. Um, we've got some cool longboards, and I'll have you know that we've got two Moray Popes. We've got just a real stock, like showroom kind of clear Moray Pope, but it was so clean when I pulled it out of the bag at this guy's place. I went, wow, this thing's just really, really cool. I'm, I'm digging it. And we also have a, a board that was made by Sidney Robert Cooper, Bob Cooper, a blue machine that he did a, a recreation. Uh, five, he did eight boards back in the mid nineties. And we've got one of those, a blue machine by Bob Cooper. That's just super. Talk about a board. Do you want to wax up? Well, that's, you know, I might even bid on one of those. <laughs> well, I didn't mention it for nothing, my friend. <laughs> well, look, um, we've had a, a great conversation here this morning. I appreciate you getting up and, and speaking with me. Um, what's next for you regarding, um, well, I asked you about, I guess you're doing the Maury Pope thing. Yeah, I mean, that, that's kind of a passion project, whether, you know, from an investment point of view, we talked investment a little bit earlier, whether it's worth you know, doing all these Maury Popes, you know, I'm not doing it to make money, I'm doing it because I have a passion for it. And I'm actually working on a story for Surfer's Journal, where I'm going to kind of feature you talk about Bob Cooper, I've got four blue machines, I got a baby blue when boards went really short, it's, it's like around seven foot, and they wow. called it the baby blue, and he worked with McTavish. I just finished two McTavish pre-trackers. I've got um, Tom Morey shaped original Morey Popes that are you know pretty plain boards. Like I said, nothing special looking, but the fact that Morey made them. So I'm really into these Morey Pope things right now. And I, I want to put this whole fleet together and kind of pay tribute to Tom Morey in, in you know, the designs that he and, and Carl Pope created. And this is almost mostly longboards, just as the beginning of the shortboard era. Um, Bob Cooper, like I said, was working with McTavish and they had some pretty neat ones. So that's where I'm at right now, but I'm always on the hunt for uh, unique, uh, I'm beating the pavement. And, you know, I just two months ago, I, I made a run from uh, Central California all the way to San Diego. I looked at over 2000 surfboards and out of that, I only picked like six of them. So I'm really picky in what I'm looking for because there's thousands and thousands of boards out there, but only a few of them are collectible for sure. Yeah. Well, good. Randy, uh, look, um, I look forward to seeing you. I think you're coming out. Are you coming out for the boardroom show? Yeah, I'll be there. And uh, even though we don't have a live auction, you know, everything's online nowadays. And um, I think we're going to have quite a few of the, your boards on display. And I'm always, you know, my job is to kind of keep the stoke going, explain to people, you know, being a um, surf historian and, and specialist in, in old boards, anybody you know, wants to reach out through you and uh, the boardroom show or, or wherever, I'll be glad. I, you know, I answer questions for all the people all the time. Like I said, they call you looking to try to sell them to you or you sell them for them. Mine is more just tell them what they've got and uh, what they should do with it. So always glad to help out. And I'll be looking forward to being out there in October. Okay, cool. Well, thanks again. And um, I'll, I'll see you soon. All right. Aloha. I've got a feeling, a feeling deep inside, oh yeah, oh yeah. I've got a feeling, a feeling I can't hide no 
For a small business is critical. It's imperative that you find a highly qualified professional to treat and grow your business with the same care and detail that you do. LinkedIn Jobs will be your next big unlock. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team fast and for free. Everybody is already on LinkedIn with their resume and their references. So the fact that LinkedIn built a hiring platform to connect the dots between everything is simple genius. It's way more sophisticated than a job board. It's a vast network of more than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set, desire, ambition, all in an effort to help us advance our position. And it's easy to use and intuitive. So effective that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Fast hiring solutions means achieving your goals in record time with rapid growth in 2024. LinkedIn Jobs will even help you write the job descriptions and give you tools and prompts to help you interview your candidate like a pro. 
linkedin.com slash surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. And you can let the world's largest social network of business professionals work to connect you with the ideal candidate to help you grow your business. That is linkedin.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply.